we're doing a series now on the book of John. And one of the things that I love about taking, just taking a book and just going through it um, is it, it forces you to, to address everything that comes up. You can't skip stuff, right? And, and we're on a passage right now, and I'll just be honest with you. Uh, sometimes I'll listen to other people. I read books. I read commentaries. We're on a passage that a lot of people scoot by. They go by fast. And the reason is because it's difficult. And it deals with difficult subjects that are hard. And we're going to just dive into them. Because this, to me, this, and I know I'm different, this is fun. Taking these difficult things, tackling them, and trying to figure out what's going on. Now, just, to, just as introduction, why are these things, why do some things, why are they difficult? And here's why they're difficult, oftentimes. Because we have a limited viewpoint. You know, we're time-bound creatures, right? We have the past, we have the present, we have the future. And they're distinct from each other. But, but what happens is, well, and if you ever watch movies that deal with this, you ever watch some of these movies that deal with like time travel? And they talk about when you go back in time, oh, if you do this, then it will ripple and change everything. You might not even live. You might lose your, your existence by screwing things up in the past. And, and if you ever watch some that really deal with it thoughtfully, it's mind-blowing. It's hard to wrap your mind around. So here's something that's mind-blowing. God is not bound by time. God, and, and, and to even be, try to explain it, I have to phrase it in, a, in terminology that we would understand. God can be in the past and the present and the future at the same time, simultaneously. So that what happens in the future can influence what he does in the past, and he doesn't screw it up like we would. And so this is an incredible statement. He lives outside of time. That's his existence. That's why he's God. And so for God to act on something, fully knowing what the outcome is, is not impossible for him. It's just possible, impossible for us. It's hard for us to comprehend. And we're going to deal with some stuff like that. So here we are in John chapter 12. This is Jesus' last public message. You know, you think about it. This is his last time that he speaks to people in public. He's going to now go and just have private time with his disciples, and he's do some intensive teaching, and we're going to get into that, and it's awesome stuff. But right now, this is it. This is the last time. And you think about that. When, when it's someone's last time, oftentimes what they try to do is they try to say something they know is really important, you know? Something that it's those kind of things like teachers sometimes say, if you forget everything, remember this, right? So here we are. It's his last one. It's some difficult stuff. But I think there's some beauty here and some comfort here that's easily missed. And so with these difficult ideas, we're going to go into them. We're going to run into them. We're going to dig into them. But I just want to say also, I, I, I want to say this. These are hard things to figure out and to work through and to deal with. And I might be wrong. I'm willing to admit that. I may make a mistake. I may. It's fine. I'll do the best I can. I'm going to teach this to the best of my ability. But if you're sitting there and you go, that is wrong, I'll be happy to talk to you. I'll be happy to talk to you Wednesday 
I'll be in Arizona. <laughs> I'll be in Arizona. Yeah. Make an appointment for Wednesday. Sure. Whatever. All right. So let me do this. Let's just, let's, let's dig into it. We're talking about the words of light, John 12, 37 to 50. And I want you to see the, my first point here. The words of light will harden or they will soften. This is important for us to remember. The words of light, the truth of God, it will either harden or soften, right? And to, and to do that, I want to read to you, and we're going to just do it together. I'm going to show it as you do. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Now, this question then brings up some important ideas. It brings up uh, one big one that people latch onto oftentimes is the, this concept of free will. Are we free to choose or does God just manipulate us to get, to get what he wants, right? And here's what we need to think about when we talk about something like this. When we talk about communication, when we talk about beings relating to each other, human beings, other beings, there's an import, something important for us to remember. There is purpose and effect. Now, not effect. I know the English teachers right now are going, oh, do you mean effect, Bob? No, I don't. Not effect on a personal, but the effect that happens, what happens. And I want you to see this because we have to deal with what is the purpose of what I am saying and what is the effect of what I'm saying? What is the purpose of what I'm doing? What is the effect of what I'm doing? Now, let me give you an illustration to hopefully, hopefully make this a little bit clear. This is a, this is a, let's just pretend there's this family and they have some young kids. And I don't want to identify them because some of them are here. It would cause them discomfort. But they're my kids. And they're Derek and Holly and Reagan especially. And I know some of them, they're going, he just doxed his kids. Yes, I did. When they were little, when they were little, one time at church, somebody, some kind soul, gave each one of my kids a Hershey's candy bar, which they didn't get much, right? And so it was like, oh, oh I'm Willy Wonka. Oh, you know, they have this candy bar, the golden ticket, and they bring it home, and we said, nope, you have to wait till after dinner tonight, then you can eat your candy bar. So we just put them on the table, and they went off and did some stuff. So I'm walking around the house, and I'm doing some things, and, and I walk by, and there's a candy bar missing. So my first thought was, Bev, did you steal one of, one of our poor kids? Right? No. So I went to Derek. I said, Derek, did you eat your candy bar? No, Daddy, I didn't eat my candy bar. Okay. Derek's like, I'm a good one. Yes, sir. You know? And Reagan, I said, Reagan, did you eat your candy bar? No, Daddy, I didn't eat my candy bar. She, I'm the sweet one. I never disobey. I said, Holly, evil one, did you eat your candy bar? No, Daddy, I didn't eat my candy bar. Now, there are some people who sometimes tell me that I have, I, I, should, have, I, should, have been, I should have been a detective or something because I, I have this ability to kind of 
cut through keen eyes, powers of deduction. And I, they kicked in because I knew, I knew Holly was lying. I could tell her eyes weren't meeting my eyes. I could tell by the way she said it. But most I could tell because there was chocolate all over her face. That was a dead giveaway right there, right? So I knew, right? I knew she'd eaten it. But I wanted to give her one more chance to come clean, to be honest, to confess, repentance, right? And so I got down, like sometimes when I I talk about this when I really want to communicate, I got down face to face, Holly, honey, now you tell me the truth. Did you eat your candy bar? No, Daddy, I didn't eat the candy bar. Well, Holly, there's chocolate all over your face. Where do you think that came from? And she goes, oh, like she had to lick it <laughs> to make sure. She had to lick it to make sure. Now, what was, what was my purpose? My purpose was to give her a chance to confess, a, a chance for repentance. What was the effect? The effect was she hardened her heart. And you know what? I was pretty sure that I knew she was going to harden her heart. I knew she was going to lie. She'd gone in too far. I knew she'd double down on that. Right? So what happens? So what happens? My purpose is to get her to repent. What happens is the effect is she kind of hardens her heart. In a sense, I hardened her heart because I set that up. I set that up. But I wanted one more try, and I wanted to be able to say, I gave you a chance to come clean. What is going on here? What's going on here? We see this all the time in Scripture. One of the ones people always, always get argue about is the Old Testament when Pharaoh, God comes... God says, Pharaoh, let my people go through Moses. And it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Then in one place, not even four verses later, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because God's purpose was to give Pharaoh a bunch of chances to do the right thing. The effect was that Pharaoh hardened his heart further and further every time. And God was involved in that. But At the very end, Pharaoh could not say to God, you didn't give me any chances. You didn't give me any chances. And so there's there's this there's purpose and there's effect. And that happened with Pharaoh. In Acts chapter 2, we're told that God preordained that Jesus would die. And we are also told that those who put him to death are guilty for that. Those two things can coexist. It's not a zero-sum game. It's not like it's 80%, 20%, 80% this person, 20%. It's 100% both. And looking at this passage, we have two quotes from the book of Isaiah. In verse 37, verse 38, it says, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, this is a rhetorical question because Isaiah, God has commissioned Isaiah, Isaiah to be his prophet. And he says this, basically, this is said saying they won't believe. We know they won't believe. It's a prophecy that the Messiah will not be believed. A prophecy that in John, as we're doing this book of John, 1 through 21, it's being fulfilled because they don't believe. So many don't believe. They won't believe. And then John quotes Isaiah 6. 
Verse 40, who, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn, or I would heal them. You see what's going on? He's saying, I'm giving them a chance and I would heal them, but they refuse, they refuse, they refuse. And, and God is saying, in a sense, I understand that I'm involved in the hardening of their hearts, but I want to give them a chance. I want to give them a chance. I mean, you think about that. Isaiah is told, I want you to go and preach repentance to these people. And guess what, Isaiah? What? They won't repent. Your job stinks. Right? And so what's happening? We know this is happening from other books and from from the book of Isaiah. What's going on is you have these people, they're disobeying God, and they see Isaiah. He's a prophet. They say, Isaiah, the prophet, give us a prophecy. Isaiah says, okay, you're committing spiritual adultery, and because of that, Assyria is coming and it's going to be total devastation unless you turn to God right now and change your ways. They're like, thanks, Eeyore. Okay, now there's this other prophet, because there were other prophets. You know, Hamsham Fullable. You say, hey, Hamsham, you give us a prophecy. You give us a prophecy. And he says, okay, I'll give you a prophecy. God wants you to be so happy, and he wants to bless you with money. And they go, hmm, I like what he says. I don't like what he says. Let's kill him. Right? That's what's going on. Isaiah is constantly moving. Jeremiah sees the same thing because people want to condemn him, to accuse him, to kill him. That's Isaiah's job. You think your job is tough? Man, his job. But we need to think about this. Because so often, we can be like those people. We can be very selective in what we hear. Because what, what it is, is we listen to what we want to agree with. And we turn out, tune out what we don't want to agree with. And Scripture is always pushing us to move from where we are. To grow. To flourish. To serve. To love. Always pushing us to keep moving. We always need to grow, or we end up just hardening. And so they harden their hearts, and God hardened their hearts. Why? Because there's a, there's a, we need to remember purpose and effect. Purpose and effect. And this is uh, interesting because in verse 41, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke to him. Now, do you remember what Isaiah saw? He said, I have seen the Lord God Almighty, holy and lifted up on his throne. And John's telling us that was Jesus. uh, Isaiah is saying, I've seen Yahweh. John is saying he saw Jesus. He saw Jesus. And so this, uh, when he quotes This Isaiah 6, what he's doing is he's telling them, this is how it works. This is how it works. Um, In in Isaiah 6, he says, I've seen the Lord Almighty. And basically, towards the end, Isaiah's he's looking at this saying it's worth it. Because why? Why? Because Isaiah becomes a light to the world. All this pain and hardship he went through. He becomes a light to the world, this human being that we honor to this day for his faithfulness. He is a hero of the faith. Some of you are enduring incredible difficulties. 
Some of you are going through very painful experiences. You're a hero of the faith. You may not see it, but you're a shining example to others. Others that are willing to see and willing to hear. And you will be celebrated one day. You will receive a well done, my good and faithful servant. But also remember this, and this is the hard part. If we constantly reject God and what He's trying to do in our lives, our hearts get harder and it gets easier to reject. That's why God is constantly trying to move us, move us, move us, grow. Don't reject. Yet at the same time, I'll just read it for you. Many of the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not openly acknowledged their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. They loved human praise more than the praise of God. So some are declining. Some are deciding, I guess I should say, not to stand for Jesus because the fear of retribution is so huge. Being put out of the synagogue was such an incredible punishment in those days. And so the fear of retribution cowed them. It's not saying they're not saved. It just says their priorities are wrong. Now, this is easy to condemn, but in reality, we fall for this very easily. In our own lives, we wonder, we worry about what people will think. What will my family think? How will this affect my job? Just like Peter on the night of Jesus' trial, we can falter and we can fail. But it's interesting, in that group we know was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and they finally did take a stand in the end. But at this point, maybe these are the, some of the ones being described here along with others, because the power of the Pharisees was huge, and the pressure to conform was real. And what is so beautiful, this is one of those beautiful things in a passage that can be difficult, is this, that God did not give up on Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea or Peter or James, the brother of Jesus, he used them in spite of their failures. Throughout Scripture, we see this. People who did the wrong thing. People who even hardened their hearts, and yet God broke through and used them. He delights to turn evil into good. We have a God who delights in turning evil into good. We did a, a series a while back on Jacob. And we looked at the life of Jacob, and when you really look into it in detail, he's a terrible person. He used people. He hurt people badly. He hurt himself. He hurt those around him. He should not have done what he did. If he had not done what he did, people would not have suffered terribly around him. And he is responsible for what he did, and yet God still used him for good. He weaves it into his plan for humanity. He turns evil into good. Think of the comfort that this is when you fail. God uses your mistakes to bring about good. Now, that brings up, obviously, a logical comment. So why should I try to hard to do good? God's going to make it all work out good in the end. And here's why. Because we love him. And doing the right thing is what we are made for. That's what we're made for. 
Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6, and he says, what shall we do then? If, if, if this grace has worked in my life, how? How can I abuse it? How can I abuse it? I can't. If I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I won't want to. I will do it sometimes, but I won't want to. Think about the security that's in this. Scripture tells us that he chose us in love before the foundation of the world. Okay, that's way back in the past. But it's like it just happened because it's, God is outside of time. He loves us, not because we first loved him. He loves us before we were. He doesn't love us because we're good. He doesn't love us because we're better than other people. He just loves us because he loves us. That's incredible. That's incredible. Think if you had that kind of love, how freeing that would be in your life. You're just going to be loved no matter what. It brings us security. It humbles us. Because we tend to look down on others. I was reading a guy a couple last week, and he said something I thought was so... He said, we tend to get our identity at the expense of others. We look at people and say, I'm not like that. Those are idiots. Those people are bad. Those, what do we do? We build ourselves up. We get our identity at the expense of others. I'm not as bad as he is. I'm not like her. It's easy to look down on others to raise ourselves up. But this, this, this is the answer for that. Your self-esteem your self-worth can go up and down all the time if you base it on the wrong thing. But God's esteem for you never changes. You are worth going to the cross for him. That never changes. And as you take that in, as you start to live in the truth of that, think, think how that frees you. Imagine that you could go through life and nothing anyone could do to you would bother you that much. Because your esteem, your security, your freedom, your worth is tied up in the person who died for you on the cross out of love. What can this person do? That's why Jesus said, you know, when he was, when he was teaching, he said, you know, don't fear the person who can kill your body. That's the worst that man can do. He says, you need to think about the person who has your soul in their hands. That's way more security. So the words of light will harden or soften. The words of light dispel darkness. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Again, this is Jesus making a claim of divinity. He's saying, I'm God. We read that and we're just like, oh, okay. But for the Jews, this was huge. This was earth shattering. They weren't sure what to do with it. He says, if you believe in me, you are believing in the Father. If you do not believe me, you are not believing the Father. That's fighting words for the Jews. And he's linking He's done this a number of times, believing with seeing. If you believe, then you're seeing correctly. If you don't believe, then you're refusing to see. Because I've come to rescue you. You are living in darkness. Darkness here is a metaphor for evil. 
And our world, I mentioned that even praying, our world is full of darkness. We're seeing it so much. The world on its own does not have the resources to generate light. The world cannot on its own deal with the darkness. You know, it's interesting. One person who really worked this out and made a very, very cogent um, um, kind of a wrapped in the theology involved on this was Martin Luther King Jr. In his letter from a Birmingham jail where he was in jail and he got a letter from, from supporters, pastors, it always, you know, Jesus is always condemning the religious leaders. And throughout church history, we see oftentimes how religious leaders could really screw things up for just the average people that believe. And I am a so-called religious leader. That's so scary. Because Martin Luther King Jr. gets a letter from pastors, white pastors who support his, support his ministry, who support what he's doing. But here they take him to task. They say, look, you've gone too far. No Christian should break the law. No Christian should break the law. No, we don't care. This is too much. You need to come out and say I was wrong. And so he writes them back, letter from a bring. It's not super long. You, you can read it on your own. It's really good. So he brought up this idea that we have to determine whether a law is just or unjust before God. A law must square with the greater law, the moral law of God, because he's saying that's the foundation. The greater moral law of God is the foundation, because without that law, that eternal law of God, then laws on this earth just become a power struggle between people. Who gets the most votes? Who has the most guns? It's the old playground thing, right? Bunch of little kids playing on a playground. And one kid says to another, hey, it's my turn to swing on the swing. The other kid gets up and he's a big kid. And he goes, says who? Right? So he rules because he's got the power. And, and what, what Martin Luther King Jr. is saying is, no, there's a foundational law that is God's law. And everybody else has to be subjected to, be subjected to this. Otherwise, it just becomes a power struggle. And he said, pointing out laws that follow God and laws that don't follow God actually points to God. It brings light. And the eternal moral law of God is the key to justice. It is an irony today that so many people speak approvingly of Martin Luther King, but reject his idea that there is an eternal foundational moral law of God that, that is over everything. But what do people say? They say morality is relative, right? And when we say that, what does that mean? That means the majority rules. It leads to the majority deciding what's right and what's wrong. I read a guy, he said, he said in the 60s and 70s, we decided that anything goes in the area of sex. In the 80s and 90s, we decided that anything goes in the area of money and getting rich. And now we're astounded that it's spreading to all the rest of our society. We're astounded when we see something like, if, if you kept track with this, with the, with the Wells Fargo scandal, where two million people had accounts opened in their name without their permission so that they could collect fees from them. You know, that wasn't one or two bad apples at the top. Tens of thousands of Wells Fargo workers were in, if you're a Wells Fargo worker, I'm not, it's, it's everywhere, don't you? Tens of thousands were in on it. We see things going on and, and, and it shows us the darkness in this world. You know, I read the FBI statistics for 2020, and they said in 2020, the amount of damage 
done and, 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 and money-wise money, money wise, in terms of uh, breaking and entering stores of, of what would they would call blue-collar crime, just people physically smashing things, taking things, running in, grabbing, uh, 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 robbing someone at gunpoint. It was about between $100 and $200 million. White-collar crime, that is things done at the very top that involve uh, um, fraud for major amounts. It's over a trillion a year. We're paying for that. It comes out of us. And it's over it's between a trillion and a trillion and a half. A trillion, a thousand millions. Is that a thousand millions? That's a thousand billions, isn't it? I'm not good at math. That's why I'm not as concerned as some people. Okay, so, and so what's happening? We all got up in arms and saying, look at that, that's terrible. Those people robbed that store, that's awful. And it is awful, and they should be punished. But somebody who steals a hundred million, we're not even concerned about. We don't even know about it. It doesn't enter into our thinking. And, and, and what is that? That is something that is pervasive. It's a darkness, it's an evil that's in our world. And once we decide that morality is relative, it bleeds into every aspect of our society. And Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of the eternal law of God. I point to it in everything I do. I am the light. Believe in me, and I will dispel the darkness. He is the only real hope for lasting change in this world. He's the only real hope for lasting change in each one of us. He says, believe in me. Trust in me. See that you're a sinner. See that I'm the Savior. And on the basis of my death and my burial and my resurrection, you can have life everlasting. Light instead of darkness. This past week, my oldest brother, um, my, both my brothers were missionaries, and he's friends with um, two missionaries who are in Ukraine. And he was on a, a Zoom call with some of the heads of the mission agencies and some other people. And they were talking to them about what they were doing. And they were saying the churches in Ukraine are mobilizing to help people. We're feeding people. He said, there's a group of us that have three or four cars and two minivans. We're loading people up. We're making a dash for the border in Romania. We get through the border easily. We drop them off at some churches that are waiting for them. And then we dash back and we just keep wash, rinse, repeat. We keep repeating this. And so the, um, the heads of these missions agencies that are responsible for them said, okay, but we're working now. We're working on getting you out. And they said, no. No. Why would we leave? These are our people. And they said already, the elders of the church have come to us and said, you're Americans, you can go, we understand, you don't, this. And they said, no, we won't go. We won't leave. We're staying here. And if the Russians occupy our area, we're going to stay here. And if they arrest us, we're going to stay here. This is where we're at. My brother said that everyone was crying at this incredible. And one of them said, we are messengers of the light and the darkness is overwhelming. We're staying. So, the words of the light will harden or soften. The words of the light dispel darkness. The words of light will judge. He says, if anyone hears my voice 
Uh, anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge that person, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them in the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just, just what the Father has told me to say. So Jesus is coming to them now, and he's saying, here's my purpose. My purpose here is not to judge the world. I came to seek and save the lost. That's why I'm here. You know, we like the seeking Jesus. We like the saving Jesus. We like that. But then he warned them. He said, but there's a judgment coming. There is a judgment coming. We're not as fond of that. And the basis of the judgment here, he's telling us, is the words spoken by Jesus. Those words. Those who reject his words bear the judgment of those words. It's like with my little daughter, Holly. In a sense, I could say to her, your own words have condemned you. Jesus says, these words I've taught you, you don't believe them? These words are going to come back at you. Now, we have to stop and think for a moment the importance of the doctrine of judgment. Because it's not, it's not something fun. Nobody studies this because they enjoy it. But there's some truths here I think we can kind of work out. I read a while back a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volv. Um, he worked on bringing healing to the Balkan area after the Balkans' wars, after years of horrific wars. And he talks about the importance of talking about Judgment Day to people who have suffered horribly. Because here's the thing. If you've had your house burned, if you've had your daughter raped, and if they cut your son's head off, and this is what happened quite a few times, and then someone tells you, well, there is no God, how are you going to work out your desire for judgment? You're going to get a gun, and you're going to go wreak judgment on people, the people who did it or people who are close to them or anybody that you can have that you feel like deserves it, right? Or if you're told, if you're told that, God, that we have this God of love, there's no judgment day. You just, you just need to forgive them. That's not going to work. But here's what Miroslav Volz said. He said, this is what worked. We told them, there is a God who takes iniquity seriously. And he will judge it. And one day he will set all accounts straight. He will judge evil. Then you have something something. And he said, it doesn't always work. He knew people who got a gun and went and killed people and, was, and were killed in the process. But he said, but then you have something that's powerful enough for you to put your weapon down and to find some sort of peace in an incredibly horrific circumstance. Because if there's no judge and no judgment, then there is no hope for the world. But if there is a judgment, the flip side is, there's no hope for us because we're all sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short. And Jesus is saying here, I didn't come to bring judgment. I came to bear judgment. I didn't come to pierce. I came to be pierced. Jesus is saying, I came to take your judgment. That's why I'm here. The light was plunged into darkness. He stood in our place. He took our judgment day. And now we are loved. Now we are clean. Now we are perfect in Christ. 
Now we are. This is my child in whom I am well pleased. That's us. So we don't have to be afraid of being judged by others. Our ultimate judgment is over. You know, you're at the workplace and somebody, maybe you're in an evaluation and it just doesn't go well and your boss says, man, you're an idiot. And you can think, yeah, but I'm not going to be judged. I'm not going to be judged in the end times. I have a Savior who loves me. I have worth and identity in Him. I can handle this. I can handle this. Because our society is a judgmental society, right? I mean, our society judges they judge us on our waistline. They judge us on how we look. Oh, look at the clothes. Oh, what a dope. You know, they judge us on our clothes. They judge us on our smarts. They judge us on our bank account. They judge us on our productivity. They judge us on our career. We're judged all the time. But in Christ, for fear of sounding trivial, we're in a judgment-free zone. There's no judgment. The judgment was taken. This is what true freedom is. True freedom, look at verse 50 here. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father's told me to say. And I know this has been something we've been over and over and over with in the book of John. But what do you think that word there is for life? Zoe. Zoe. There is bios for life in the Greek. Bios means physical life, eating, drinking, burping. Just physical life. I had to say that because I told my grandkids I would just say burp one time in a sermon. And then there's Zoe. Zoe is a life of purpose, a life of meaning, a life that is fulfilling, a life that means something greater than me. And those two words are used for life. And Jesus adds the word eternal onto Zoe to say, so it's not just a life of meaning and purpose and fulfillment here on earth. It's a life of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment forever. And that's what's used here. I know that his command, the commands that I'm saying, leads to eternal Zoe. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Jesus says, I've come to give life. I've come to give life. And Jesus says, come unto me. There is no judgment here. It's been paid for. There is light and power and freedom. And we have the ability to live in that. It's hard at times. We stumble and fall at times. It's up and down sometimes. But he has given us, through the Holy Spirit of God, the power to live that kind of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words, that they do not return void that they are true. And Lord, as we take these things into our lives, you change us from the inside out. We experience life, Zoe life, here on this earth as we follow in the footsteps of our Rabbi Jesus. Help us to be found faithful in that. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.